In her essay, Is Gender Necessary?, she wrote, Along about 1967, I began to feel a certain unease, a need to step on a little farther, perhaps, on my own. I began to want to define and understand the meaning of sexuality and the meaning of gender in my life and in our society. Much had been gathered in the unconscious, both personal and collective, which must either be brought up into consciousness or else turn destructive. It was the same need, I think, that had led Beauvoir to write The Second Sex and Frieden to write The Feminine Mystique, and that was at the same time leading Kate Millett and others to write their books and to create their new feminism. But I was not a theoretician, a political thinker, or an activist, or a sociologist. I was and am a fiction writer. The way I did my thinking was to write a novel. That novel, The Left Hand of Darkness, is the record of my consciousness, the process of my thinking. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, feminism, and other worlds. I'm your host, Jason Nemoore Hardin, and on this episode, we explore one of Ursula K. Le Guin's pivotal novels, The Left Hand of Darkness. Writers often asked, why do you write? Which is, you know, an impossible question. I wrote it because nobody else would and I wanted to read it. Tolkien, as a matter of fact, said that. He said, I knew nobody else could write it because nobody else knew about Middle-earth, end quote. Ursula K. Le Guin was born Ursula Kroeber in Berkeley, California on October 21, 1929. Being the younger sister of three older brothers, she would naturally tag along wherever they went. She didn't, however, consider herself as brave as they were. For instance, she didn't climb trees. As a matter of fact, she was terrified of climbing. The larger point is that her parents didn't make any great distinctions between boys and girls, which granted her all the freedom she wanted to explore. Just in her case, not climbing. <laughs> Among the things that did fascinate her, one particular pastime which she would devote her life to explore was writing. Her very first story at age nine was about a man who sees elves. No one else can see them, mind you. Well, long story short, in the end, the elves had their way with the protagonist. Now, that story was perhaps the bleakest thing she ever wrote, but it was a start. Ursula was always writing and always considered herself a writer. In fact, she never even told herself that she wanted to be a writer. Instead, she simply acknowledged the fact, thinking to herself, I am a writer. She attended Berkeley High School, which she would later make known her loathing of the place. She felt as though she never fit in. You know, her sweaters were never quite the right length or color. Simply put, she felt that she could do no right. Now, after high school, it was off to Radcliffe, and after that, Columbia University, where she earned an M.A. in French, figuring she would need a skill to support herself while she pursued her dreams of becoming a paid writer. 
Already having submitted poems and short stories by the time she went off to college, dear old dad volunteering to be her agent, some of the poems were published. However, each and every short story was rejected. And the problem with this, of course, was that she wanted to be a writer of stories, not a poet. The year was 1953, aboard the Queen Mary en route to France at the age of 23. Ursula met Charles Leguin. And both were sailing to France on Fulbright scholarships. By the time they reached the other side of the ocean, they were in love and sealed the deal after exchanging wedding vows in France. On returning to the U.S. at the end of the year, they moved to Macon, Georgia, where Charles had grown up. When Charles finished his doctorate while Ursula taught freshman French as she continued her pursuit of writing, soon came children, so she was then forced to move her writing time during the night, after the dishes were done. Unfortunately, during this time, all her stories and novels came back with rejection slips attached to them. For ten long years, the rejection slips continued, but Ursula was not particularly discouraged. I was dogged, she would later say. I had an absolutely unfounded self-confidence, partly a temperamental thing and the way my parents brought me up, and I knew that I would get better. She had given up reading science fiction years before because it all seemed to be about hardware and soldiers. Then a friend encouraged her to read Harlan Ellison, Philip K. Dick, featured on episode 19 of House of Words, and Theodore Sturgeon. Now, reading these authors led her to discover that the genre was changing. She would then come to the realization that all of her material within fiction had always possessed an element of fantasy. For instance, taking place in an imaginary country or something of that sort. And the publishers didn't know what to call it, which meant they didn't know exactly how to label it. And for that reason, they wouldn't publish her works. So by rediscovering science fiction in her late 20s, she thought, hey, you know, maybe I could call my stuff science fiction. Well, a few years later, after continuing to hone her craft, she sent a story to sell a lolly at Fantastic Magazine. Hmm, what a pleasant surprise for Ursula. Lolly wanted to buy it. Thirty-two years old at this point, she was paid $30 for her story, April in Paris. Now, that $30 payment was promptly spent on a pair of brown wool pants she had seen advertised in The New Yorker. It then occurred to her that she had to have a pigeonhole, or at least start with a pigeonhole. Eureka! She had found a label for her writings. From then on, Ursula K. Le Guin was a science fiction writer. The next five years would be spent breaking into science fiction with pleasant, though minor works. Now, a number of false starts would occur, you know, writing several hundred pages and then scrapping them. And by her estimates, she wrote at least four novels in those years. All kept in boxes in the attic, she knew that they were all part of the learning phase. So there she was, in her late thirties, after years of persistent crafting. She wrote and published her first masterpieces, A Wizard of Earthsea and The Left Hand of Darkness, within months of each other.
Ursula Le Guin's muse would arrive in various ways. She vividly recalls Left Hand of Darkness being the nicest visit because it came as a vision, as a scene of these two people pulling something in a great snowy wilderness. Simply based on that vision, she knew there was a novel in it. Writing The Left Hand of Darkness would be a deep dive into the world inside her mind, the world she called Earthsea. Now, concerning the landscape, she wasn't under the impression that she invented it. Rather, it felt like she discovered it. Like her father, the anthropologist, she felt as though she was discovering a new world, a new civilization, all in her head. The place she discovered was an ocean containing a host of islands, islands containing these particular people, people she would learn about as she wrote. She would later say, it is certainly related to dreaming or to deliberate fantasy in the psychologist's sense. Not daydreaming, which is just wondering, but it's a very odd business, and I can't explain it. Now, she referred to the technique she applied when writing the story as a thought experiment. Now, one of the original ideas for the book came from imagining a planet with an abundance of cultures on it, many civilizations, and a long history that had never undergone a major war. Sounds like a wonderful world. <laughs> how would the people differ from us? What would they have or lack? That was how it began. Now the androgyny came secondary to that to begin with. When that first leading element of this planet became a smaller factor, the Jathinians were born. Sexual androgynes, bisexuals, sexual possibles. Once a month, like other animals, they all enter into a kind of heat when their bodies change and polarize becoming male or female. No one knows which he or she will be. Now, if conception occurs, the female remains female and bears a child. If not, she returns to androgyny. Now, the mother of one child could literally be the father of several others in this world. Now, Ursula would later say that she never really knew whether this was actually physiologically possible in humans until she gave the completed manuscript to her pediatrician to read. It is perfectly possible, he told her, but it is disgusting. Now, the hero of the book, a visitor from Earth, is very uncomfortable with this arrangement, and it is his gradual painful discovery of love between equals that forms the book's heart. Now, Laguine has been criticized for using a male hero, but she has an explanation. I knew a woman would just love it. There wouldn't be any dramatic scenes. She would just settle right down. I needed this guy who hated it who was uncomfortable and miserable in it. It's true, a woman wouldn't have done. She would have just run around saying, whoo, this is wonderful. In the midst of developing the story, she found herself continuously getting stuck because although she had worked hard on trying to plan out this world, she wasn't exactly sure how an androgynous person would think. She would wonder, what would protagonist Estraven's reactions be here? So she'd sit back and tell herself, All right, I won't plan what I'm going to write next. Well, eventually, and quite often, one of the myths later included in the novel would spill out of her. 
She would later interpret this by saying that it must have been her unconscious instructing her as to how androgynes think. Now, whenever she had written one of the myths, she would put it aside and carry on. She reasoned that she had gotten over another hump or this or that not in the story, but didn't originally intend to include the myths in the book. They were just her problem-solving devices. Eventually, however, when the book was finding its final shape, she looked at these pages and thought that some of them were actually kind of nice. She felt as though they might help other people read the book. Thus, she put most of them back into the novel. As alluded to in the intro, the writing of the novel coincided with the beginning of the feminist movement. Some of the major books, modern books on feminism, were being written at that very moment. Now, despite not seeing herself as a theorist or an activist, she wanted to find out what the differences between men and women really were. She wanted to find out what it would be like to be a man-woman or a woman-man. She admits that it was great fun, but that it was also rough, as this examination entailed a lot of homework on sex roles and on physiology. Coming up with the psychology of the androgynous characters in The Left Hand of Darkness also took a long time. For about six months, she planned the people, the geography, the culture, everything. This all came before she could sit down and write this book. In the end, she had notebooks full of maps and history, much of which was not included in the final product. She was so deep into this world of this novel while writing the book that she could even write in the language of Karhidish, a Jathenian language she invented for the novel. She became so fluid in the tongue that she could even write poetry in Karhidish. I would like to see some of that. Looking back on the book, Lagine remembers that it was a very exciting story to write. The book being her fourth, she felt that during the writing she came to realize just how much she could say in science fiction and how much of a real novel you could write within the genre. She felt like she had hit her stride in a way she had not done prior. The Left Hand of Darkness would go on to win both the Hugo and Nebula Science Fiction Awards. But when boiled down, according to Ursula, it is about two very human problems, betrayal and fidelity. When asked once what the most constant theme in her novels was, she replied without stopping to think twice, marriage. Ursula Le Guin felt that inspiration needed to occur on its own, that she couldn't force it out. Some of us are just at the mercy of our unconscious, she said. She did, however, eventually find a methodology. She learned that there was a tap she could turn on, that was, if she was working on something already. However, it was that first surge of inspiration, that surge which would plant the first and most important seeds. That one had to come naturally. Once she was in a creative flow, though, working on a major work that might take months or years, she took the advice of Ernest Hemingway to keep the creative juices flowing. Hemingway, featured on House of Words episode 33, gave a bit of advice on how to keep a story interesting and alive. He said, 
To the writer, more than anything was to always stop in the middle of a story and never stop at a natural stopping place. Always go a little past or stop short of it. Even stopping in the middle of a sentence is better because then, when you return to it the next day and read back the last few paragraphs or pages, you soon find yourself being reminded of what you had wanted to happen next and you can hook back up into your unconscious flow. Hmm, thanks for that one, Ernest. Having a schedule in place was always very important to her in order to get her stories done, a schedule that was nonetheless dictated by her children for quite some time. When they were babies, she would write after they were in bed. When they were a bit older, but still little ones, she would write at night. When they started going to school, well, she wrote while they were at school. Not that everything was all easy and sailed along smoothly according to plan or schedule. It was rather the contrary. There were times, for instance, when she would read about Lady Antonia Frazier with her big books and her five children and fifteen nursemaids, which led her to feel a profound and evil envy towards Fraser's situation. Then there was the occasion when she would hear about some man who has quit a paying job to devote himself to writing full-time. Now, that irked her. Ursula would find time to write when she had jobs, and when she did quit those jobs, she still had the full-time job of the kids and the house. Regardless, she found the time to write. But she did have an ideal schedule, a dream schedule of sorts, one which she spoke to a Polish reporter about in 1988. The schedule was as follows. 5.30 a.m., wake up and lie there and think. 6.15 a.m., get up and eat breakfast, lots. 7.15 a.m., get to work, writing, writing, writing. Noon, lunch. 1 to 3 p.m., reading, music. 3 to 5 p.m., correspondence, maybe house cleaning. 5 to 8 p.m., make dinner and eat it. After 8 p.m., I tend to be very stupid, she told the interviewer, and that that was something she would not talk about. As usual, let's end this episode with a quote from the perseverant science fiction master herself. I suppose in everything I write, I am making some sort of statement, but I don't know just what the statement is, which I can't say I feel guilty about. If you can say exactly what you meant by a story, then why not just say it in so many words? Why go to all the fuss and feathers of making up a plot and characters? You say it that way because it's the only way you can say it. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, keep turning those pages. Thank you.
House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason M. Harden, And music by Creature9 and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Nemo Hardin.